Anna. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Fabulous. <laughs> I normally hope for like a witty comment, but today I'm just like present. <laughs> like, <laughs> I totally understand. <laughs> I was having one of those days where I realized I was like, I have not stepped out of my apartment for like 36 hours. Oh my gosh, it's unfortunately so easy to do that in the quarantine. Yes, yes it is. So then I went and got my mail, and I sat out on my balcony for a little bit, and I did some cross-stitching while I listened to a podcast and drank a LaCroix. I was like, ah, me in my true hipster form. (laughs) (laughs) Just embracing all the trends of 2020. (laughs) It's like, I don't know how I got here, but I'm not mad about it. Uh, I love it. What have I been doing recently? I've been, like, watching a lot of Schitt's Creek. I actually, I'm basically almost done with the the whole series. I love that TV show. It's so good. I used to watch The Office. People call it a comfort show, but now it's Schitt's Creek. Yes. I just love the characters. Like, Moira, David, and Alexis, all three of them are just so out of touch sometimes i just love them i just love them so much i love how they actually have character arcs you know what i mean like they grow oh completely yes they grow and they're just so unique and uh, i just can't get enough of the show it's so good i love it i have a knockoff of that alexis a necklace i wear it all the time because all of a sudden i was watching that show one day and i was like i want a necklace like that i was like wait my name also starts with a (laughs) You can have a necklace like that, Anna. (laughs) I started the show like last year and I watched the first episode and then I didn't get into it so much. But then I started watching a few episodes just like randomly from the middle of one of the seasons and it stuck. It's just so good. I actually watched the first episode and again, didn't get into it. And it wasn't until a while after that, my parents were like, this is so good. You got to get through the first episode or two. And then I couldn't stop. Oh, completely. It's hilarious. I love all of Alexis's outfits. Oh my God. They're so beautiful. Uh, I knew you would love them too. I love them all. Again, I bought an A necklace for myself. Nobody gave that to me. I bought it for myself from Nordstrom Rack. (laughs) Uh, I appreciate that so much. I love the amount of like shininess and glitter. and Uh, uh, So nice. And it just makes me want to embrace wearing a completely ridiculous outfit for wherever I'm going. Oh, completely. Anna and I talk about this and some of our friends are like, we're minimalist. And then Anna and I will look at each other. (laughs) It's like, mm. <laughs> they're like, my wardrobe has seven items. I was like, oh, I'm happy for you. I had to buy an extra rack for my closet because I couldn't get everything in there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I saw stuff in suitcases because there's just no room in my closet. They're just like, we have all sorts of pieces. And I really love Anna for being on this bandwagon with me of just collecting all sorts of different clothes and like styles and (laughs) i don't i don't know you get to choose who you want to be every day except for in quarantine and then i'm just in sweatpants i'm the same person and that person is a scrub 
Oh my gosh, yeah. Or I'll just wear my pajamas all day and be <laughs> like, oops. I think I've said this on the podcast before. Have you ever done that thing where you you go to go to bed and all of a sudden you realize that you're wearing the same pajamas you slept in the night before? <laughs> and you're like, do I change? Do I put on new pajamas? Do I just double down and commit to this? <laughs> it's such a valid question. Right? <laughs> Those are all valid questions. This is gross, but should I dirty other clothes? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Oh my gosh, I feel so validated right now. (laughs) I'm happy I could do that for you. All right, so I finally broke down. Every social media app on the internet has desperately wanted me to watch A Discovery of Witches. Have you gotten the ads for that TV show? No, I have not, and I have no idea what you're talking about. I have gotten so many ads that it finally worked, and I gave in, and I started watching it. And it's not bad. It's pretty good. So is it truly like a supernatural fantasy oh, completely. show? Or is it like a horror? It's what? not It's not horror. It's like okay. there's witches and vampires and demons. And I'm no, not still not 100% sure what the actual demons, like what their power is. I'm still not sure. 10 episodes in, uncertain. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. Like it's pretty good. I love a good supernatural TV show every once in a while. Oh my gosh, yes. I totally love fantasy. When I started reading Harry Potter as a kid oh. and I was about to turn 11, I wrote a letter to Hogwarts really Aww. hoping that I would get accepted. That's so sweet. <laughs> if only. If only. Yeah, that sounds like a fun show. So wait, what network is it on? Okay, it's on Sundance, which is, I didn't even know. I was like, the Sundance <laughs> Film Festival? That's what came to mind. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, it has to be the same thing. But anyway, I ended up finding it on Amazon Prime. But then I didn't want to pay for it. So they do that thing where they're like, sign up for this random TV service for five ninety nine a month. But you can get your first month for free. And so I was like, all right, I got to watch all 16 episodes of this in the first 30 days. And then remember to cancel this membership. <laughs> <laughs> I've totally done that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I've done that before with like, uh, I really wanted to watch basketball games for uh, the Warriors. Go Warriors. <laughs> Hannah loves basketball. But I just did not want to pay. Like I was at my parents' place and I was like, oh, I don't want to pay for the whole like premium sports channel situation that's like $60 a month. They're expensive. So expensive. But what is your Hogwarts house, Hannah? Oh my gosh. I think, um, oh, I went through the sorting hat situation at Barnes and Nobles and I was a Ravenclaw. Oh, <laughs> uh, I can see that. Uh, and you're a Slytherin, Anna. I am. <laughs> you told me this and I, I remember. I have leaned in. As you should. Slytherins are awesome. Right? We're not all jerks. No. Some of us are just ambitious. Ambitious, cool, edgy. <laughs> So edgy in the clothes I may or may not have slept in last night. (laughs) No, I changed today because I worked out, so I had to change. Oh, nice. Proud of you. (laughs) I know. Making strides. All right. Do you want to talk about what we're going to talk about today? Yes. Actually, Anna, why don't you introduce the topic since you came up with it? Okay. So sitting at my desk, trying to think about what in the world we were going to talk about today. And I thought it would be fun to talk about Pluto. Woo! everybody's friend yeah when anna reached out and she's like do you want to do an episode on pluto i was like hmm i guess and then when i started researching it it's really cool like 
Right? This episode is a little different than other episodes we do. We really just wanted to get into the the planetary science side of Pluto and also talk about, you know, the controversy surrounding whether it's a planet or not a planet. And we just came up with what we think is some really interesting content. Yeah, we just had fun with this one. All right. So before we get into it, do you want to introduce ourselves? Yeah, let's do it. I'm Anna. And I'm Henna. And this is... But But it it is Rocket Rocket Science. Science. We have done that so many times. Every single time I have to re-remember how it goes. It just starts with our names. (laughs) (laughs) It's not particularly unique. (laughs) Anna, it's no problem. It's like 8.30 p.m. (laughs) All right, let's get into Pluto. For context here, I started taking these notes on a Friday night. And so I wrote, Pluto, once a real planet, but forever a planet in our hearts. Love it. Right? And then, after I read back what I wrote, I wrote, I'm pretty sure this is rock bottom. (laughs) Which I proceeded to then write, that was possibly the worst joke I've ever made, but I'm not deleting it because I'm still sad Pluto isn't a planet anymore. I appreciate the joke, Anna. So if that isn't a window into my psyche, I don't know what else is. (laughs) So, as we've already even mentioned, as I'm sure you all know, Pluto was declassified as a planet in 2006. And there actually is some controversy surrounding this, which I knew a little bit about, but not a lot. And Henna's going to talk more about this. But to just start out, Pluto, which is currently classified as a dwarf planet, is the largest known member of the Kuiper Belt. All right, so Neptune is the farthest planet from Earth. Past Neptune, we get into the Kuiper Belt. And that's where Pluto's located. So, you know, here we go. Everything's coming together. The belt is thought to contain hundreds of thousands of large objects made of rock and ice, as well as what is estimated to be one trillion or more comets, which is a whole lot of comets. That's an insane number of comets. I literally read that article more than once. I was like, trillion? Like with a T? Yeah, that's crazy to think about. So many. If you listened to our last episode, The Cozy Coffee Chat... You heard me talk about Comet 67P, which is like my new thing. Hannah kind of knows this about me. I like learned something. I'm like, this is the most fascinating thing I've ever learned until I learned something else. And we're going to talk about this every lunch break we have until I find out something new. <laughs> yes. And she's still stuck with me as my friend. So I don't know if that's not true friendship. I don't know what else is. So. I love it. I'm always learning. <laughs> so I talked about 67P. 67P originated in the Kuiper Belt. Just, I don't know, to connect everything together. Now back to Pluto. Pluto was officially discovered in 1930 by the astronomer Clyde Tombow. However, Pluto is so far away that we actually didn't know very much about it until July of 2015, when NASA's New Horizons spacecraft successfully performed a close flyby of Pluto. So I'm sure you've seen that picture, and it's like the picture of Pluto with what almost looks like a heart shape on the surface. Do you know what I'm talking about, Henna? Yes. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a really cool photo. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. If you've seen this picture, that is from New Horizons, or more specifically, the Long Range Reconnaissance Imager, or the LORI, L-O-R-R-I, which was the camera aboard New Horizons. Just for a little context, at its farthest point, Pluto is 4.67 billion miles, or 7.5 billion kilometers from Earth. At its closest point, It's 2.66 billion miles, or 4.28 billion kilometers. Its furthest point and its closest point are so different because it has a very elliptical orbit. But I'm actually going to talk about that in a second. 
For a quick comparison, Mercury, which is the closest planet to Earth, is only 138 million miles away, or 222 million kilometers away. So we're talking magnitudes of difference between Mercury and Pluto. Now, New Horizons was, and it's actually still going, a feat of engineering. It was launched in January of 2006, and it was traveling at a record-breaking speed of 36,400 miles per hour, or 58,500 kilometers per hour. Wow. I know. Like, crazy. How? That's, oh my gosh, just like, what? It's crazy fast. But like I mentioned above, it didn't reach Pluto until July of 2015, meaning even at that speed, it took nine and a half years to reach Pluto. That's how far away Pluto is. That's insanity. Like, going that fast, 36,000 miles per hour or 58,000 kilometers per hour, and it still takes basically a decade to reach the destination? Holy, that's a lot. It's so crazy. And which also blows my mind about that is that they discovered Pluto in 1930. Yeah, right? Like, was that prohibition? I think so. Yeah, okay. It was January 1920 to December 1933. I was correct. Like, that was the Prohibition era when they found Pluto. It just blows my mind that with 1930 technology, they were able to find Pluto when it takes 10 years to get to going at that speed. Yeah. That's crazy. That's another really good point. Now, it takes nine and a half years to get there. That's already impressive enough. The story of the New Horizons Pluto flyby actually is even more interesting than that. It's kind of crazy. So on July 4th, 2015, nine days before the first flyby, New Horizons went dark for 90 minutes. So it had been flying for nine and a half years, and nine days before it was supposed to get there, it just went dark. They lost all communication. That must be so horrifying. Like, could you imagine how stressful? I probably would have cried. (laughs) And how, like, heartbreaking that moment was. I literally just reading this, if I think about it too hard, will make me emotional. (sighs) I, I cannot. So it did turn back on after 90 minutes, and they were able to connect with it again. But the engineers learned that it was in safe mode, which meant that the camera, or that lorry that I mentioned, would not be able to operate. So they were going to get it all the way there and then not be able to use the camera. That's a huge bummer. Devastating. The engineers scrambled. I cannot even imagine the level of scramble that must have been. (laughs) Yeah. I've scrambled. This has to be that times a thousand or a million. So the engineers scrambled, but they were able to determine that the issue was due to an overloaded central processing unit or the CPU. So if you hear that fancy word, I feel like they always mention that if you're ever watching like a TV show with computer hackers, they always talk about the CPU. It's the central processing unit. It's basically the primary computer. They found out something was overloading the CPU and throwing it into safe mode. So they were able to come up with a patch, upload that to New Horizons, and get it out of safe mode and back on track by July 7th. So it was essentially three days. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Right? They had to fix something that was billions of miles away. (laughs) And they did it, which is incredible. If I mom calls me up with a computer issue and I'm not in the same room as the computer, I sometimes struggle to fix it. Oh, completely. Like, I need my parents to FaceTime what they're looking at or screen share. Yep. Like, I don't know. Thank God they were able to get that camera back on because almost all of the information we have about Pluto is because of New Horizons. We were not even sure how big Pluto was. Yeah, that's crazy. Right? Because we found it in 1930. So it took us 85 years to figure out for sure what size it was. On July 10th, 2015... Mission scientists were able to conclude from New Horizons observations 
that Pluto is 1,470 miles, or 2,370 kilometers in diameter. So it's actually a little larger than was initially thought. So, I don't know. I thought that was fun. Mm-hmm. And then its moon, Charon, was found to be 750 miles, or 1,280 kilometers in diameter. And then just for reference, Earth's moon has a diameter of 2,150 miles, or 3,475 kilometers. Okay, so almost three times the size. Yeah, it's a bit bigger. So now, I could go on about New Horizons for a while. It's so cool. I was reading so many fun articles about it. But I think we should save it and just do a full episode of New Horizons so we don't cheat it of the time it deserves. So for now, I'm going to focus on Pluto. Pluto's surface has some of the coldest temperatures seen in Earth's solar system at around minus 375 Fahrenheit or 225 Celsius. I was sitting around trying to think of something that was like cold to compare. <laughs> I was like, what's cold? <laughs> like, And all I could think of was dry ice. Yeah, like what's negative 375 and relatable? <laughs> I was like, I can't use ice at 32 Fahrenheit or zero Celsius. <laughs> Like, that's not going to help us. So I was like, dry ice is cold, right? Yeah. Dry ice is negative 109 Fahrenheit or negative 78 Celsius. Pluto is three times colder than dry ice. That's crazy. And I did not realize that. That's like a great reference. I didn't know that either. Like, you cannot touch dry ice with your hand. You'll get cold burns from it. Yeah. So you have to wear gloves. Exactly. Yeah. So apparently we're not living on Pluto (laughs) without some safety gear for quite a while. Another fun fact about Pluto is that its orbit is retrograde. So if you ever hear that word, it just means it rotates opposite to the direction of Earth. So Pluto rotates east to west. Now, I'm going to go back to this point I made earlier about its orbit being highly elliptical. What this means is that it's not a perfect circle, but it's a wide oval. It's like you took a circle and you squished it. For Pluto to complete one orbit around the sun takes 248 Earth years. So one year on Pluto is 248 years on Earth. That's crazy town. That is a long time. Pluto will never complete an orbit in the lifespan of one person. Right. Like you would not have a birthday on Pluto. You would not. Oh, I didn't think about it that way. That's sad. (laughs) (laughs) What also is really interesting about Pluto's orbit is that it is so elliptical for a period in its orbit, it is closer to the sun than Neptune. So you know that like little, like, I feel like this gets burned into your brain in grade school, like... Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, as the planets being distanced from the sun. Yep. And there's always like some mnemonic that someone will come up with. Or a little song, but it gets drilled Uh into you over and over and over again. From 1979 to 1999, it went Pluto, Neptune. Not Neptune, Pluto. I had no idea. I don't remember reading that. I had no idea about that either. I literally read this a few times, but this blew my mind to an extent that it probably was not deserved to. (laughs) That's so cool. I had no idea. It is really cool. (laughs) Right? That this happened during our lifetimes. That's not going to happen again for like 240 more years. Other fun facts about Pluto. Pluto has water. It's even thought that Pluto might have a liquid ocean hidden underneath a thick layer of water ice. Science are actually unsure if this ocean has been there since Pluto initially formed or if it came after. The theories are really interesting. I'm going to put an article from Scientific American in the sources if you want to read more about it. It's super interesting. Essentially, they're debating how Pluto was formed. It's really cool. Pluto has so much water ice, and it is so cold due to those surface temperatures I mentioned earlier, that this ice is crazy hard. And it's actually hard enough that it can form mountains, just like Earth. And then what's also fun is if you look at pictures of Pluto, you can see that these mountains are white on the top. They're snow-capped just like Earth mountains. 
But it's not regular snow. The snow is actually made out of methane. Methane snow. That's crazy. Yeah, I watched a documentary. I think it was on the Science Channel uh, about this. I really love the Science Channel. And they talked about, like, you can actually burn. Like, this, this snow will light on fire because it's made out of methane. If it wasn't so cold, it would be, like, a cool place to refuel. Except the, for, for the fact that it's, like, insanely far away. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like as an aerospace engineer, whenever you're trying to come up with mission designs, it's always, like, where can we refuel? Where can we get natural methane um, and use it as a fuel source? And Pluto's got it. It's just really far away. Right. If you could make it for 10 years, then you could hit up Pluto. At 38,000 miles per hour. Yeah, and then somehow survive negative 375 Fahrenheit. Then, then you'll be good. <laughs> it's actually really interesting. I was reading about the theory they have for how they got these snow-capped mountains. So on Earth, there is snow at the top of mountains because both atmospheric and surface temperature decreases the higher you go up. So you know when you're hiking up your mountain, you get to the top, it's really cold at the top of the mountain compared to the bottom. So what happens is when humid air comes up on a mountain, it blows up the slope. And so you have this really wet air. It blows up the slope from this warmer temperatures on the bottom. It gets up to the cooler temperatures on the top and it condenses and it creates clouds and snow. That makes sense. Yes, that was very simplified, but I think a good description. However, this isn't true for Pluto. On Pluto, the atmosphere is heated by the sun. I'm assuming this is because Pluto has no ozone. Meaning temperatures rise as altitudes increase. But Pluto's surface temperature remains cold. So you're going up the mountain, the atmosphere, the air around you is really hot. The surface you're standing on, really cold, regardless of altitude. So what scientists think happen is that gaseous methane, which is most prevalent at higher altitudes, condenses directly on the surface of these mountains due to the incredibly cold surface temperature. And that creates these snow caps. Okay, so the key words here are the cold temperature... On the surface of the mountains. Yep. When that gaseous methane comes in contact with that surface, it's so cold that the condensation occurs. Exactly. So, you know, if you are on a hot day, you pour yourself a cold glass of water and you get that like condensation on the outside of your glass? Yes. It's the same thing going on here, except at the top of these Pluto mountains, the atmosphere is really hot. The surface is really cold. So this hot atmospheric methane hits this really cold surface, turns to snow. Yes, and that cool glass of water, excellent example, Anna. Thank you, thank you. I feel like it's just because I love cold water, and in the summertime, my glass gets all weird and sweaty. <laughs> my hand gets all wet, I gotta find a coaster. All right, now the last thing I'm gonna talk about here is Pluto's moon, Karen. Pluto actually has five moons, but Karen is the largest, at just under half the size of Pluto itself. This is incredibly unusual for a planet's moon to be this large in size relative to the planet. The Earth's moon is a quarter of the size of Earth. If it was half the size, it would be huge. Now, another interesting point about Pluto and Charon is that Charon is so close in size to Pluto. Instead of Charon orbiting Pluto like the moon orbits around the Earth, Charon and Pluto both orbit a point located between them. So scientists refer to this pair as a double planet or binary system. If you want to get into some really intense stuff, Google double planet system. <laughs> I ended up in a hole. I passed the point where I know what's going on. <laughs> but it was really interesting. Now, what's also interesting about the pluto Charon system is that they're tidal locked. So we've talked about this in a previous episode. The moon is tidal locked to the Earth, meaning the same surface of the moon always faces Earth. So that's when you hear, like, the dark side of the moon. That's what that means. I'm doing 
air quotes with my fingers because the dark side of the moon is just a reference to the side of the moon that we never see because it faces away from Earth. But it's actually not really dark. You can Google it. (laughs) Uh, The dark side of the moon isn't dark. That's one of my biggest pet peeves. What's interesting about Karen and Pluto is that they're both title locked to the other, meaning the same surface of Karen always faces the same surface of Pluto. The same surface of Pluto always faces the same surface of Karen. Wow. Yes. So what this means is if this happened on Earth, the sun would never set. It would appear to stay in the exact same position all the time. No sunsets, no sunrises. No sunsets, no sunrises. It would be kind of a bummer. That's crazy to think about. How interesting. You can Google it and you can find some really cool GIFs online. I will link one in the sources. They're just fun to watch. But that's all I got. Yeah, that was fantastic. I learned so much. Thank you. I had fun. Pluto 101. Heck yeah. I'm excited to hear about Pluto, (laughs) its rise and its fall. (laughs) I love that joke. Um, (laughs) Thank you. But first, do you want to take a break? Yeah, let's do it. Welcome back, everybody. So this is the second time we're going to have to do this minute because my headphones died and then I had to get a new pair. (laughs) I didn't even get the low battery warning. They just turned off. Yeah, but luckily we hadn't recorded too much. No, no, no. no. All right. I am so ready to hear about Pluto's history. All right. So Pluto's history goes all the way back to 1909 when Percival Lowell, who was a very rich businessman slash astronomer, became determined to find the ninth planet which he had termed Planet X. So he and his friend, William Pickering, embarked on this pursuit together at the Lowell Observatory in Arizona. So you may have guessed from the name that Percival had something to do with this observatory. He actually founded the Lowell Observatory a few years prior to starting the search for Planet X. I don't know what it's like to be like, I want to find the ninth planet, so I'm going to find an, I'm going to, I'm going to found an observatory. Right? (laughs) That is just so many levels above where my current life is. (laughs) but sounds really cool we're just trying to get the peloton status here (laughs) i need a car wash i have needed a car wash for like two months and i still haven't done that oh my gosh so i'm definitely not finding an observatory anytime in your future founding an observatory (laughs) the peloton remark i made was anna and i were complaining about how we're not at peloton status in one of our previous episodes (laughs) i have a schwinn bike and i really really like it but one day one One day day i'll get a peloton All right, so back to Pluto. Before I dive any further into the history of this planet, I wanted to establish our historical footing. So what I mean by this is I just want to provide some information about what else was going on during this time. Yay! I was, yeah, I was inspired by you, Anna. Um, Anna's done this in our previous episodes. Oh my god. To be very transparent here, I do this, A, because it's interesting, but B, also because I normally have to look it up for myself because I'm so bad at remembering anything about history. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can totally relate to that. (laughs) So I was like, might as well throw it in the podcast because I don't know either. The few times I remember historical facts, I just become embarrassingly proud of myself. Yeah, the fact that I got that 1930 was prohibition, I'm still happy about that. I'm impressed too. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so let's establish this historical footing. So back during this time, uh, something that I found out was that battery-operated switchboards were a very hot invention. So this was in the early 1900s, late 1890s. 
Um, so what's a battery-operated switchboard? Well, when the telephone came out, at first only two people could connect with each other until these switchboards were invented. And then these switchboards were operated by men and women who were called operators. These operators would answer calls and then manually direct the call to the intended receiver by physically unplugging and plugging in cables into the switchboard. So yeah, cell phones definitely feel like a luxury item now when you think about that. Yeah, you would literally call an operator and can be like, can I talk to so-and-so? And then they would physically move a thing. Oh, yeah. And some of these switchboards were like floor to ceiling and um, operators would be climbing ladders to move some of these cables. It's nuts. It was mostly women. Yeah, it was a lot of women. And um, it was like men at first. And then I actually read this in one of the articles I was looking at. Apparently men were not very personable over the phone (laughs) and could not get it together. (laughs) And so then they started hiring more women. I didn't realize that's why they hired women, because they were disappointed with men's attitude (laughs) on the phone. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I read that somewhere. Don't know if it's entirely true, but... That's funny. I'm into it. Also during this time, another fun fact, well, not a fun fact, it's actually a pretty sad fact, is that Mount Vesuvius had erupted, causing Mm. destruction in in Italy. And then also during this time, Coca-Cola was sold in bottles for the first time. Wow. What a very diverse time. Yeah, exactly. A very diverse time. Okay, so back to Pluto. So Lowell and Pickering continued searching for Planet X, and they recorded possible coordinates for the ninth planet. The initial hardware that was used for the search included a reflecting 42-inch, which is 110 centimeters, telescope, along with a small camera. They hired a team of computers that was led by Elizabeth Williams, who was a physicist who had recently graduated from MIT. So she was about 22 to 24 years old. Whoa. And she was leading the search, um, or she was leading the team of computers. That is incredibly impressive. I actually, like, Googled her and found her thesis online. And back then, you you were not typing theses. Like, I forgot you had to handwrite your 80-page thesis. And hers was just written in this beautiful cursive and there were just pages and pages of handwritten handwritten formulas i forget about that every time i make a plot and it's in excel i'm like people had to do this by hand yeah isn't that crazy <laughs> yes wow even more impressive Hmm. so she and her team worked on calculations of possible locations that planet x could possibly be found in Research for Planet X continued until Lowell passed away in 1916, but the Lowell Observatory had photographed Pluto without realizing it in 1915. They had assumed it was a star, and they had overlooked it. Yeah. After Lowell died, the search for the planet was put on hold until 1929, when the director of the observatory at the time hired 23-year-old Clyde Tombaugh, Um, who Anna mentioned earlier, and Clyde was tasked with continuing the search for Pluto. And his process for the search involved taking pairs of pictures of the night sky and then comparing them to determine if any objects had shifted in the images. He did this using a blink comparator, which is a tool that would switch two images back and forth very quickly so the viewer could immediately tell if an object had moved. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
this kind of reminds me of going to the optometrist for a vision exam and then they switch really <laughs> fast between image A and image B and you're supposed to tell them which one is oh my God, less blurry. Yes. And I'm like, I don't know. They both look the same. <laughs> <laughs> when is this going to be over? Yeah. Or like a flip book. You know what I mean? Where you like yes. you do an animated flip book. That's a good one too. Blink comparators are no longer used today. We now use algorithms to analyze images and pick up the slightest of differences with higher levels of precision. So after a year of research, Tombaugh noticed a difference in the images. Um, and this news that, you know, he had this, this discovery was made for Planet X, this news started spreading a few months later. That same year, an 11-year-old girl told her grandpa that she had an, an idea for the name of this new planet. She wanted to name it Pluto after a Roman god of the underworld, which I thought was such a fascinating choice for an 11-year-old to think of naming a planet after a god of the underworld. That's heavy. I hope she's doing okay. I hope so, too. I hope she got time to frolic <laughs> in the fields and yeah, me too. Enjoy her B eleven. Yeah. Wow. I mean, a super cool that she named the planet. B. I hope she's all right. Completely. Yes. Very cool that she named a planet, and I agree. <laughs> so her grandpa sent this name to the Lowell Observatory, and it was accepted that same year. So fun. So cool. All right, so now I'm going to fast forward to the tragic demotion of Pluto as a planet. I think that was the right descriptor. Tragic is correct. <laughs> that was sad. I was sad. Yeah, it was weird. Like, I was young when this happened, and I was just like, what? Yeah, we but, had just figured yeah. out all the planets. <laughs> we had just learned that dumb mnemonic we had to for third grade. <laughs> right, and then they're like, just kidding. All right, so why is Pluto no longer a planet? Well, back in 2006, the International Astronomical Union, IAU, determined that Pluto should technically be referred to as a dwarf planet. So what qualifies a celestial body as an actual planet? So there are three things. One, the celestial body must orbit the sun. Two, it must have enough mass to be pretty much round in shape. And three, it must have cleared its neighborhood of other celestial bodies. I have no idea what that last one means, so I'm excited to figure that out. Anna, yes. I did not know what it meant either until I did this research. <laughs> I was like, first two? Got it. Last one? Nope. Nope. Need some help with that one. So Pluto orbits the sun, and it's pretty round in shape, but it does not clear its neighborhood of other objects. That is why it does not classify did not get classified as a planet. So what the heck does clearing a neighborhood of bodies mean? Well, it means that besides Pluto itself and its satellites, its satellites being its moons, there must be no other objects of similar size within Pluto's vicinity. So over the course of astronomical history, our solar system began as a disk of rock-sized particles. Eventually, larger rocks attracted more rocks toward them, and, they, and these just continued to grow in size. And over time, they essentially, these rocks that kept growing in size, they eventually kept consuming other objects within a certain distance because of their gravitational pull. Eventually clearing uh, the area around it because it kept attracting these objects toward the primary celestial body that eventually continued to grow and grow. 
So essentially, these objects got so big, so their gravitational force got stronger, so everything around it ended up being... A part of it. Exactly. So what's interesting is that the person that came up with this, with the term of clearing a neighborhood, with this term of clearing a neighborhood, um, this person was Alan Stern, who passionately fought to keep Pluto as a planet. Back in early 2000, Alan Stern and his, and his colleague, Harold Levison presented a formula for a term called lambda. This formula was used to determine whether a celestial body is likely to clear its neighborhood of planetesimals, small tiny bodies around it, within a time frame that is equal to the age of the universe, which is about 13.7 billion years. This formula was based on the object's mass and orbital period. The orbital period is the time it takes for an object to orbit the sun. If lambda was less than one, then the planet should be given a special designation. Alan Stern did not want any object with a lambda of less than one to be demoted from planet status. He just wanted a special categorization within the umbrella term of planets. Yeah. Alan Stern's an interesting guy. He really is. However, eventually the IAU used this methodology to just blanket categorize Pluto and other objects as dwarf planets in 2006. Do you remember that observatory I spoke about earlier, the Lowell Observatory in Arizona? Well, if any of you love Pluto so, so much, you should check out their very cool I Heart Pluto Festival that they throw every year. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It just I makes love me that. think of the radio I listen to of the I Heart Music Festival that happens. Yes. And then I love the, the like, the heart because... They imaged a little heart shape yes. on Pluto. Yeah. So cute. So they actually just had a virtual I Heart Pluto Festival about two months ago. So back in February 2021. And one of their keynote speakers was Dr. Alan Stern. And you can find his uh, YouTube lecture on that website. I'll have it linked in our sources. Dr. Alan Stern led the New Horizons mission. And in this YouTube video, he talks about how the IAU's decision to demote Pluto to a dwarf planet is actually hurting the IAU's reputation. He firmly believes that the IAU designation should have been a subcategory uh, within the designation of planet. Some of the points that Dr. Alan Stern makes in his talk include one, the fact that the IAU categorization of dwarf planet isn't widely accepted by the scientific community. In fact, there are a lot of scientific journals that still do not call, uh, that do not use the term dwarf planet for Pluto. Also, he goes on to further explain that small planets have more in common with other planets than they have with other small bodies like asteroids. When rocky bodies become a certain size, these gravitational dynamics take effect and round them, and then they undergo geophysics that are closer in process to planets as opposed to being closer to small asteroids. Oh, interesting. Yeah, isn't that so interesting? All right. The second point he makes is that voting was the mechanism that was used by the IAU to decide on the demotion for the planet. Um, and what he finds this problematic he said that quantum physics isn't voted on. Scientific classifications, he believes that scientific classifications should not be determined by voting. He makes the, he goes on to make a point that if you had a room full of scientists and they call the sky green, it does not make the sky green. 
And he believes that this sort of approach to scientific classification makes science more political, makes science political when it shouldn't be. I have not seen this talk, and I now very much want to see it. It was very engaging. (laughs) I'm excited. I'm going to watch it. The third point I pulled from this YouTube video, uh, from this lecture, is that he goes on to play a clip of Neil deGrasse Tyson, and the, the clip is an audio of Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, in quotes, if dwarf planet is a category of planet, I have no problem with that. Basically, Neil deGrasse Tyson is also on board with Alan Stern's position of calling Pluto a dwarf planet, but the term dwarf planet being taken as seriously as the term planet is taken yeah, as. Yeah, that's Alan's platform, or on first name basis now. <laughs> His platform is not that Pluto is not a dwarf planet. It's that dwarf planets should not be classified differently than planets. Like dwarf planets exactly. are still planets. And so there are some scientists who argue that if we call Pluto a dwarf planet, then there are a bunch of other things that also qualify as dwarf planets. And I think we should classify them as dwarf planets. Like, if they exist out there and they don't fit in comets, it makes sense to me to call them dwarf planets. However, I have not done a ton of research into this. And so it's something, this is something I'm saying right now, but it is something I want to research further to get a better formed opinion about. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as Anna. I do believe that I need to do more research on the terminology to have a more well-formed, well-informed opinion. All right, Anna. Well, that's all I have. That was awesome. Thanks, Anna. Uh, Do you want to tell everyone where they can find us? Yeah, definitely. So you can check out our website, but it is rocketscience.com. That actually has a contact us tab if you want to shoot us a message. If you have ideas for future episode topics, if you just want to say, hey, we also sell merch on our website. Uh, I'm super biased, but I love our logo. We have tote bags, coffee mugs, t-shirts. If you like our logo and you want to buy some merch, check out our website and go to the shop tab. We can currently only ship to the U.S. and Canada, but if we get enough interest, maybe we can open it up. And then you can find us on Twitter at ButItIsRS. You can find us on Instagram at ButItIsRocketScience. And then you can find our podcast on your favorite podcast streaming services, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, all the good ones. If you enjoyed listening to this, uh, leave us a review. It would mean a lot to us. All right. um, Let's get into our sources. Okay. You want to go first? Yes, I'd love to. All right. So I used a NASA.gov article about Pluto. It was an overview about Pluto. I used a couple of Wikipedia articles um, about the year 1906, about Percival Lowell, um, Pluto, Elizabeth Williams, and the year 1894. I referenced the the website iHeartPluto.org for that festival I mentioned earlier. I referenced two YouTube videos. One is a YouTube video about the term cleaning the neighborhood. I'll have that linked in the sources. And the other YouTube video is the lecture by Dr. Alan Stern that I got from the iHeartPluto.org website. And the last source I have is a article on the IAU's decision of demoting Pluto. And this article is from the Library of Congress website. Nice. I relied pretty heavily on space.com for this for just a bunch of different articles about Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. I used Universe Today for interesting facts about Pluto. <laughs> uh, NASA website, again, for more stuff about New Horizons and Pluto and Karen. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, what is this source? And it's uh, I had to look up how cold dry ice was. So that's what that is. I have that article on Scientific American that talks all about the, deba- the debate about whether or not Pluto's ocean was there when it formed or not. 
And then I have NPR.org, which actually had a really awesome description about how Pluto's mountains get those white caps. And I had another NASA article about Karen. All right. Let's close it out. Let's close it out. Thanks for listening, everyone. And until next time, space cadets, T-minus three, two, one, liftoff. Lift off.